0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. During today's program, we continue our series with Dr. Neufeld, entitled The Fellowship of the Gospel. Picking up from yesterday's study of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, let's examine now the exaltation of Jesus.
1: I have become concerned about the call to discipleship. Let me put it another way. I have come to think there is something wrong with the way some of us are being encouraged to follow Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's good and right and necessary to follow Jesus. Jesus himself insisted on it. First, he repeatedly called for his would-be disciples to abandon all that they love and demanded that they pick up their cross and follow him. And second, He made discipleship not optional, but mandatory. However, I have noticed a dangerous trend around the command for discipleship. Now, to be clear, this trend did not come from Jesus. It comes from the way in which we understand Jesus. Sometimes the command to radical discipleship leads to legalism, self-righteousness, pride in our own performance, a kind of Christo-Phariseism where we simply substitute the Pharisaic insistence on the law to a Christo-Pharisaical insistence on obedience to the commands of Christ. Here's what I think was wrong with the Pharisees. For them, obedience to the law was an end in itself, the final goal. And when we do the same, so that obedience to Christ's commands is the ultimate goal. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that obedience to Jesus is optional, for it surely is not. Furthermore, obedience tests us to see whether we truly love him more than all other things, but the motivation or the mindset or the reason for our obedience is what I'm talking about. Let's see if I can make this plain. In Philippians, Paul has demanded that all believers walk worthy of the gospel. Then he has demanded that in the mission of reaching the world for Christ, that we believers, we the church, remain unified, doing nothing from rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. And then in order to help believers do this, this thing called walking in humility, Paul has said that it's not possible at all until we gain the mindset of Jesus. Jesus did not use his equality with God to his advantage. He readily embraced the role of a slave and humbly obeyed his Father, even submitting to the disgraceful suffering of the cross. The key word in all of this teaching is the word obedient. If you want insight into the thought life of Jesus, that's the word. He submitted to the Father. He obeyed the Father. His obedience knew no boundary lines. He who was the Father's equal in every way, for he shares all his essential attributes, accepted obedience to the Father in all things. Here's the question. Do you want to learn to think the way Jesus did? Do you want to learn his mindset? When we began to study Philippians chapter 2, we talked about how to put others' interests ahead of our own. We acknowledged that to do so seems unnatural, even impossible. You know, at that time, I had mentioned Gandhi, who, when he lost a shoe as he was boarding a train, quickly took off his other shoe and threw it where the first one was, so that a poor man might have the benefit of two shoes. I said this was an example of thinking of others first, and I said that this kind of thing is not done on the spur of the moment, but is the result of deliberately living according to a principle in which the needs of others are consistently being placed above our own. Only then will the impulse to throw the other shoe on the track even enter into our minds but that example pales. That example is nothing. That example should not even be mentioned beside Jesus. For a pair of shoes costs little, but what Jesus did demands all. And that brings me again to the question. Do you want to think like Jesus thought? Do you want his mindset? How many of us are easily offended when we don't get the recognition that we're due? That's the opposite of the mindset of Jesus. How many of us spend a lifetime trying to become someone who's either rich or famous or recognized or respected? Jesus went in the opposite direction. Listen to Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Paul could have ended his discussion on the mindset of Jesus simply by teaching the content of Philippians 2, 6-8. You know, that section read, and let me remind you of it, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Paul could have said, begin to think like that. And in fact, he did say that. But to say that on its own can amount to no more than legalism. It can amount to no more than saying, you ought to try harder to think like Jesus. And then, even though we try, we either fail or imagine we have succeeded, and we become proud of our achieved humility. Listen now to what Paul says next. Remember, he's discussing Christ's humility, and I'm reading verses 9 to 11. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are many Bible students who have been puzzled by this passage. If this is about imitating the mindset of Jesus, it's difficult to know how to apply this text. After all, every knee will not bow before us and call us Lord, even though this is a beautiful ending to the humiliation of Christ in that through his humility, he has been given a name unlike any other name. What can that mean for us? And what can we learn about our own obedience from verses 9 to 11? But Before we get to that, let's examine the text. Notice that after Jesus' superhumiliation comes this moment in triumph. The triumph of Jesus does not come before his humiliation, but after. And that's significant. The greatness of his name will not be known upon the earth until after he has suffered a humiliation unlike anything we can imagine. Kent Hughes gives us a picture. He pictures the gears of a catapult being ratcheted down, ever tighter, ever tighter. The pressure is immense, and yet still the catapult goes down a groaning as the huge log is bent, bent further and further down to the point that you might think it would break, but the one who controls the catapult knows exactly how far to bend the beam. The ropes also are stretched to the maximum, and then the latch is tripped, and there is an explosive launch of indescribable exaltation. And the only reason why the load in the end of the catapult travels so high and so far is directly attributable to the downward pressure of its humiliation. And that, says Dr. Hughes, is what Paul is describing in this passage about Jesus. After his crucifixion, after he was rendered helpless and powerless on the cross, after he had become the object of the hatred and ridicule of men, After he was publicly mocked for being unable to come down from the cross, after they thought that they had proof that in no uncertain terms was this one ever the Son of God, after his crumpled and abused lifeless body was lain into the tomb, comes the resurrection. And at that moment, the Father displays just how great the Son actually is. See, the first thing that happens in the resurrection is that the Father has highly exalted him. Let's consider what's being said. After the incarnation and the cross, Jesus does not become greater than he was. There's nothing greater than being fully God. How can God exalt Jesus by conferring on him a name above every name? I mean, what can that mean? You know, throughout the Bible, Jesus has a lot of names. They include Wonderful Counselor and Prince of Peace and Almighty, all found in Isaiah. Daniel mentions Ancient of Days. The Gospel of John, he's everything from the bread of life and the light of the world and the door and the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life and the vine and so forth. I can mention more names, Alpha and Omega, Anointed One and Messiah, the beginning and the end, the beloved Son, the cornerstone, Emmanuel, faithful and true, the firstborn over all creation, the head of every man, the Holy One of Israel, the great I Am. See, the names of Jesus are many, and each name that has been attributed to Jesus is filled with majesty. When we come back, we're going to see that there is something about the willingness of the Son to submit to the Father in utter humiliation, even to the humiliation of a brutal cross, that exalts and acclaims Jesus in a way that nothing else can. And this, this exaltation of Jesus— will tell us how we need to begin to think just like Jesus
0: did. We hear this term a lot when we become Christians, to be more like Jesus, to do what He would do. But what does this exactly mean? And how do we do this with the right motivations and not just out of trying to be more spiritual? We must continue to have the mindset of Christ. But how does His exaltation give us wisdom and guidance for becoming more like Him? Well, we'll find out more about that right after the break. What a time in history. In one sense, who would have imagined? In another, the Bible suggests that we should expect such times. In either respect, it is certainly a reminder of those things that matter most. Our love for God, our love for family, and the calling each of us has as children of God to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, and we're so grateful that as a result of so many people across the country who give so generously that this mission continues. So thank you. Your commitment to giving allows this Bible teaching ministry to sustain its programming every day. So coast to coast, to each of you, we express our gratitude and please be assured every gift of any amount is so appreciated. To know more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada and all the Bible teaching resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Paul says that because of Christ's humiliation, Christ has been highly exalted. Listen again quite carefully to verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Greek word here is the word kurios. Bible teachers who study in the original languages notice that when the Old Testament was first translated from its original Hebrew into Greek, the Jewish scholars who translated the very first Bible translation took the name of God, Yahweh, and translated into the Greek word kurios, or Lord. So, for instance, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, hear what God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, remember that the word Lord, kurios, is a translation of Yahweh. I am Yahweh, and I, Yahweh, will not share my glory with another. God alone bears the name Yahweh. He does not share that name. Now, are you ready for this? Verses 10 to 11 of Philippians 2 are a rough quotation from Isaiah 45, verse 23. Let me read it. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. See, all knees bow to Yahweh, to none other, only to Him. And, says Paul, when that happens, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. What the Father has done with Christ's humility and then His resurrection is that now the Father has publicly identified Jesus as His full equal. The Father went public, declaring that the Son always, for all eternity, was fully equal, fully as glorious, and fully as the source of all light, as is the Father. Of course, He always was the Father's equal, but now, in the resurrection, the Father goes public, declaring the full equality of the Son to every single creature. Furthermore, in the end of the day, all creation will be forced to agree with the Father's assessment of the Son. The nations will bow before the Father and declare that the Son is Yahweh, and some will in horror confess that all along this is who Jesus is. The Sanhedrin that crucified Him will confess it. Judas who betrayed Him will confess it. Pilate who tried to wash his hands of Him will confess it. The demons of hell who rebelled against him will confess it. And all the angels of God will gladly confess it. Along with we, who have been redeemed by Jesus, we will gladly confess it. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh. He and the Father are one. And this is all to the glory of the Father. That is, it showcases the great and awesome grandeur of the Father. All creation will agree. None will deny it. Ah, but what has this to do with us as we try to walk in humility and count others' concerns before our own? The Father will not publicly identify us as his equal, will he? Of course not. He already told us that he will not share his glory with another. So what can this mean? In Revelation 3 verse 9, Jesus speaks to the suffering church in the city of Philadelphia. He says to the persecutors of that church that in the end, when Christ returns and all things are placed in order, those persecutors will be forced to bow down at the feet of that church and acknowledge that Christ has loved them. Those people who despise the church, who showcase their power over that church, they will come trembling and finally admit who those saints actually are. And that's the issue. 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 reminds us that if we endure, we will also reign with him. And in Matthew 5, 5, Jesus promised that the meek would inherit the earth. Let's go back to Jesus' promises to the churches in Revelation. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Pergamum, he says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. To the church in Thyatira, he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To the church in Sardis, he says, to the one who conquers, he will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. To the church in Philadelphia, he says, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God. And the church of Laodicea, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, in each case, the motivation for obedience, the motivation for humility and suffering and standing strong in the day of persecution is to look beyond the present dark hour to the final day, to the glory that will be revealed. And that is Paul's point in Philippians. How is it that Jesus adopted the mindset of humility, humiliation, and willingly submitted to the scourging and mockery and slander and torture of this world? Well, he did it by never taking his eyes off the prize. That's why Hebrews 12 verse 2 says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, when you think of others ahead of yourself, when you're willing to be humbled, even humiliated. You will only do this if you believe that this is the road that leads to exaltation. Jesus taught us that the first will be last and the last first. The age to come will show a complete reversal in importance and in joy. So here's the question. Do you believe that? Because if you do, you will gladly adopt the mindset of Jesus. Obedience unto death caring for the interests of others without caring that you receive recognition, rejoicing while others are acknowledged, while you remain in the shadows. You will in humility count others more significant than yourself if you believe this stuff. And from that mindset, the unity of the church is preserved. I want to be the first to acknowledge how difficult this is. But we can never get to that mindset if we only think about our duty, about trying to be humble. Instead, we need to be motivated by the reward set before us. Indeed, that's precisely what Jesus did. Now, having said that, let's apply what we've learned to the Philippian church. Paul is writing to them from prison. Their leader looks like Rome can do to him whatever it pleases. He seems disgraced. Furthermore, the church in Philippi is being asked to pour out libations to Caesar and to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord as a sign of their loyalty to the empire. See, if they refuse, people might boycott their businesses, and they might well be humbled in their community. Furthermore, Paul has written to them about some of the Christian leaders in Rome who preach Christ out of arrogance and as an attempt to gain a reputation for themselves. And out of this, the great danger is that the church in Philippi might do the same. How easy it is to begin to think about our place and reputation in the community. And when the pressure of all of that becomes too great, the church might splinter and become divided. But not if they adopt the mindset of Christ, and certainly not if their motivation is the motivation of Christ. If they begin to desire the applause of heaven rather than the applause of earth, the mindset of Christ will hardly seem like a legalistic burden. It will become a joy. That, then, is why the commands of Christ Obedience to him and walking in humility is not a burden, neither a cause of pride. It is merely a way to receive a reward that this earth cannot offer. It is merely to follow the great men and women of faith, like Moses, who thought that the treasures of Egypt were but a poor offering compared to the riches of the Messiah. Might I make an appeal to all my brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't sweat it when you're not recognized, or when others seem to get applause while you're overlooked such things must happen so that you can decide what you truly want. Do you want the riches
0: of earth, or do you want the treasures of heaven? John, this has been a great message, and I think you're offering something here that maybe we haven't thought of before, about being humbled, about humiliation, about it being the exaltation of Jesus, in essence. humiliation hurts. I've been there, and you've probably been there too, and many of our listeners have been there. How do we overcome the pain of humiliation to do the things you required us to do?
1: It's a great question. I think, first of all, we have to begin by acknowledging how painful humiliation is to anyone going through it. And when we go through it, we do well, I think, to simply acknowledge, I'm hurting right now, and it's okay to hurt. And I think we need to say that. Um, And that comes in a number of different forms. You've mentioned that. I think the only thing that needs to happen in the end is that we can be carried through these painful moments of our lives when we fix our eyes on the prize at the end. I mean, it's like we have to train our minds to say, this is a part of what God has designed for me that he might maximize my joy in heaven. I think that's the way we need to identify with Jesus, and that's the mindset we need to grasp.
0: You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking one of the things that Jesus often did is he spent so much of his time with those that were humble, uh, those that were humble in the eyes of the the world. Do you think there's something to that?
1: Yeah, no doubt. I think that the more we seek to have an, you know, let's say an aggrandizement or some kind of a self-exaltation on this earth, the more our humiliation is going to hurt. But when we begin to walk with the lowly, as Jesus did, uh, I think we begin to embrace this as the pathway of Christ, and things do get easier. So, uh, Ben, you know, it's an interesting thing because, you know, every listener is going to be able to identify this. And I think every listener can say,
0: I need to learn so much from Christ. I hope that this message has encouraged you as we remind ourselves of the importance of keeping a biblical perspective when it comes to striving in our journey to be more like Jesus. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube a new, inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.